Our podcast will contain potentially triggering content, such as a discussion about an unwanted abortion, mentions of cutting, binge eating, death, and vomit. Please take care if you choose to listen to this episode. Welcome to the XYZ Podcast. We are three good friends, each from different generations, chatting about the most important pop culture moments from the month and what that might say about the zeitgeist of today. Whether you're great at keeping up with the times or you live under a rock, this podcast has something for you. Before we begin today's episode, we wanted to bring up some important things that took place this month. We thought that it would be irresponsible to not include these in a monthly recap, but we also didn't want them to be part of the pop culture discussion to respect their gravity and their importance. On October 7th, Hamas launched a deadly operation. In response, Israel has cut off necessary supplies to citizens and bombed the Strip daily. We hope that by next month's update, there will be peace in the region. At the end of October, Matthew Perry passed away, played the iconic Chandler Bing in Friends, and was an advocate for people struggling with addiction. We ask that you keep those who are grieving throughout this time because of aforementioned events in your thoughts and your hearts. With that, on to pop culture. Alrighty, welcome to the podcast. I am joined by the lovely Tish. Hello. And the not-so-lovely sibling, Gus. Hiya. And I'm Val. Nice to meet you. Nice to see you again. Nice to sit in your living room or your car. Maybe I'm in your lunchbox. What are you having? Sandwich? Maybe I'm right behind you. (gasps) (laughs) (laughs) That's appropriate. Happy Halloween! Yes. Happy Halloween. Woo! October was ridiculous. We have a lot to talk about today, so let's just hop right into it, shall we? Let's do it. All right, so we are going to start with our quick fire section, which hopefully this time will actually be a quick fire segment. <laughs> Last time was a bit of a slow burn. So on the season four premiere of The Kardashians, Courtney and Kim had an explosive phone call. That was one of their worst fights yet. Now, Kim claimed that there was a group chat with Courtney's good friends called, quote, not Courtney, where they complain about her. To which Courtney shot back, you're just a fucking witch and I hate you. I mean, valid, but kind of like, I'm not really going to talk about what you said. I'm just going to insult you. Yeah. I'm personally team Courtney. She seems like she's maybe the most normal one. Maybe. Not team Kim. I'm team get this show off of the air already. Oh, yeah. I'm team I'm over the Kardashians. Give me something else, please, and thank you. The meme that, did you know that when memes first came out, guess what? how I used to pronounce it? The meme of course. <laughs> the meme that came back around again is the no run, no, when he's on the chessboard. P.S. J.K. Rowling sucks. We hate it, but this is in the cultural zeitgeist. It has transcended a transphobic author's brain. It is ours now. We're going to do a dramatic reading of it. In today's dramatic reading, Harry will be played by Val, Ron will be played by Gus, and I will be playing Hermione. This is the role of a lifetime. I've been waiting for this my entire life. Me too. Wait a minute. Do you understand why, Harry? Once I made my move, the Queen will take me. Then you're free to check the king. No, Ron, no! What is it? He's going to sacrifice himself. No, you can't. There must be another way. Do you want to stop Snape from getting that stone or not? Harry, it's you that has to go on. I know it. Not me. Not Hermione. You. 
and this has been made into trap music this has been danced to this has been recreated into acapella yeah. it is beyond this ridiculous scene in the first harry potter movie it is much more did you just hurt your throat doing that because i did We are starting off with some movies. To start off, we have Killers of the Flower Moon, which was released on October 20th and is a sweeping three and a half hour epic from one of the greats of cinema, Martin Scorsese. While many critics felt that the story of betrayal of the Osage nation by white settlers needed to be more grounded in the Osage perspective, it is still being heralded as an incredible work and a powerful depiction of indigenous people. The issue that I have with the film, I don't know if it could have been avoided given who the director was, because when a white man is writing a story about indigenous people, it's being looked at through the lens of a white man. I don't know if he could have done any better. If he wanted to put it in the perspective of an Osage person, he definitely could have co-directed it with someone, just to get more of that voice in there. Although, I will say, from what indigenous people and Osage people have said, their depiction of the culture was actually, like, pretty good and, like, well done. So, it was seen through the lens of a white man, but at least they did them some justice. The performance of Lily Gladstone, the main Osage woman, it was so good. Such a powerful performance. It's just a shame that she wasn't the center point and that it had to be like Leonardo DiCaprio and Robert De Niro, who again, their performances are always fine, but like everybody wanted more of Molly. You know, that's Martin Scorsese's bread and butter. Like he has his favorite people that he works with. It's almost like a mafia movie, but it's set on, an, you know, indigenous land and things like that. And it is very reminiscent. The Legends of the Fall, which was a very similar one. It's not like it's new, but it's nice to see the kudos going to Molly and also hoping that this can encourage more indigenous actors, performers, producers, directors. Like if this story can be popular and get money and accolades then hopefully they'll tell more of those stories because we need them and i think there's things that like scorsese could have done to elevate those voices better but this is a good start here we've got updates on the october video game releases so Assassin's Creed Mirage is the latest venture from Ubisoft Studios and was released on October 5th. It is set in Baghdad during the Islamic Golden Age and reviews across the board loved the city's historically accurate details. It even made a Muslim historian cry. Where the critics become divided are with the game's combat and plot elements. They hearkened back to the older Assassin's Creed games where there was a lot more stealth and less weaponry options, which if you liked the classic games, then perfect. This is great for you. But if you liked having more of the options and being able to brute force your way through it, then you might not like this game so much. One really cool part about this game is the positive representation for Arabs and Muslims, which is pretty much non existent in gaming i haven't really seen it except for this game even if you don't like the gameplay that much you got to give the game its props it tries its best to be historically accurate to the time of and place that it is set in and i think it does a great job from what i have seen thinking about it like it's pre-crusades for my history buffs out there i think a lot of people don't get to really connect to that side of islamic history the old video game world can be quite a lot of racism, sexism, all of the isms. So it's good to see it sort of like turning around. The isms and the obias. Uh, yeah. I think even if you're not super into some of the combat, I think it's worth exploring the city and seeing those details. And it's only 16 hours long, so it's not too much of your time. In terms of Assassin's Creed games, it sounds like one of the most accessible because a lot of the other ones are sprawling and huge and really long, like 30 to 60 hours. Being that I don't know much about 
gaming do the assassins do they have a creed see that i don't know but i know that they love the band creed so it's just playing <laughs> in the background the whole time during the islamic golden age or creed all the time creed but on the sitar <laughs> now this is one that i am so excited for because mario is like my childhood it's called super mario bros wonder released October 20th by Nintendo. It's being praised as the most creative Mario game in 30 years and the Mario game we've been waiting for. From all of the footage that I've seen, the different game stages are beautiful. There's lots of surprises and fun power-ups in store. Like it is incredible and it looks so much fun. I got sent a video of one section and it's very cute and fun, but it looks really hard. <laughs> so even though you might die each time, you'd be like, yay. There also is a character that you can play as where you don't take any damage. One of the developers of the game, who's like a big Nintendo guy, I forgot what his name was. I will put the person who talked about it in the show notes. But he said that he's been able to 100% most Mario games. And he can't 100% this one because of two levels that he needed help with. He said that they were that hard. Oh, wow. It looks adorable, but this definitely has some difficulty for your hardcore gamers. Uh, Marvel. Ugh, Marvel. They're like the octopus with arms everywhere. Marvel's Spider-Man 2 is a highly anticipated release from Insomniac Games. Came out October 20th. The story of this game is a strong point and is being called the best of this series yet and a real triumph. Have you played? Have not played, have seen trailers, and it is an absolutely stunning game. And I've seen some of the gameplay, and the fighting looks absolutely badass. So I'm not gonna lie, I'm into this. I think it's pretty cool. I think it's pretty interesting how there's still a lot of excitement and hype for this game, even though people are extremely fatigued with Marvel. But people are still really excited about this game, and I think that's a testament to how good the first Spider-Man game was. I will say, though, the people who were not that into that first game that really wanted something different from this game, you're not gonna get it. It's very similar. It's a great game, the 2018 Spider-Man. So more of the same, but with Miles Morales sounds great to me. So <laughs> I'm into it. with the music segment of today's podcast now today we are talking about benito aka bad bunny his album nadie sabe lo que va a pasar mañana is already successful being the biggest debut album of 2023 on the global spotify chart it's an album that harkens back to his trap roots and impressively toes the line between knowing what english-speaking audiences like without pandering to them However, not all the songs stick the landing and this album could have used some editing. It was a very long album and there were bangers on there, don't get me wrong, but they just felt a bit few and far between for me, but that's just because trap isn't my favorite genre. For someone that likes trap, I have a feeling this is like a great album. Trap just isn't my favorite, so I'm sorry Benito was not my favorite, but Cybertruck was a banger. Cybertruck and Monaco. Pitchfork gave it a 7.4 out of 10, and I think that score could have been a lot higher had the album been edited more. But yeah, it is interesting that he went back to Trap. The last albums have not been that at all. It still is getting, you know, a lot of buzz and a lot of excitement, but I don't know if it's going to be as popular as his last album. I'm looking forward to see what he wears to the Met Gala. That's all I know Bad Bunny from. <laughs> He's a fashion boy. Okay, let's go with some October TV. First of all, it's called The Fall of the House of Usher. So that was released on October 12th on Netflix. It's an eight-episode series that's loosely based on several of Edgar Allan Poe's classic tales, although some critics were not convinced and felt it was a gimmicky mashup. Most were delighted, with Rolling Stone calling it a literary orgy of death. Fall of the House of Usher is actually a short story of Edgar Allan Poe's and I read it at university and I hated it. It was the worst. 
overrated. Now, I've been informed, though, that there is little Easter eggs from all of the other stories, like Telltale Heart, blah, blah, blah. I think I will actually watch it based on those ones because as soon as I saw Fall of the House of Usher, I was like, no, thank you. But I'm a little bit more like warmed up to it because of what we've been researching. You guys have watched it, right? We watched it and I really liked it actually. You know, I enjoyed it thoroughly. I really liked it. It was gorier than I was expecting. The one thing about the gore is it was a little bit predictable. Like you knew when it was coming, which to some people that are a bit more hesitant about horror, I think that was a good thing. But if you're like a super horror junkie and you don't want to see it coming at all, this might not be your cup of tea. But when it does happen, it's kind of wild. All I'm going to say is Freddy went out like the douchebag that he was. <laughs> it was very cinematic. The actors did a great job. There were some episodes that had pacing problems. Mm-hmm. I thought it was a good show overall. I thought it was fun. If you're into the macabre, I think you're really going to like this. Is Usher in the fall of the house of Usher? The musician, Usher? Usher, 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 Usher. Yeah, John, yeah, yeah. So Gen V is a spinoff of The Boys that was released for Prime Video on September 29th. It is centered around superheroes fighting their way to get the best grades at a crime-fighting academy. While there are lots of good reviews and fans are obsessed with the Jordan and Marie ship, there are some problematic elements of the show that we cannot look past. One part in particular that bothers me about Amazon Prime Video releasing a show about, you know, the people in power being secretly shitty and you have to stick up to them. (laughs) It's just... It felt weird. The way that they activate their powers is incredibly triggering and incredibly problematic. And even though a lot of people seem to really like the show, I think that maybe they get sucked into it without realizing how harmful that is. Because when I just read what it was, I did not want to watch anymore. And I think a lot of people probably would feel the same way. One of them activates their superpower by purging. And the other one is cutting. My concern there would be anyone who sees that and relates their self-harming to something positive. And I think it would be very confusing for anyone who suffers from that. And there's enough in the world to trigger us. I just don't know how they could handle that in a way that's like delicate. It just seems like this whole show is kind of like the world sucks, everybody. Doesn't it suck? And it's like, yeah, it does. I don't want that to be my downtime TV. We know. (laughs) Hard pass. I will watch Sky High. So, Dragula is, I'm very excited. Dragula is a monster drag competition and far superior than RuPaul's Drag Race, in my opinion. And they have just started season five with Meet the Queens out. They have a range of ages, genders, size, nationalities. So the lineup is, we've got some pretty iconic names here. We've got Anaphylactic, who's from the UK. Then we've got Blackberry from Houston, Texas. Cynthia Doll from Kansas City, Missouri. Fantasia Royale Gaga, Miami, Florida. We've got a drag king, Jarvis Hammer from Atlanta, Georgia. JK from New York City. Naruhu, who lives in America, to be fair, but is Chinese. Onyx Ondix, love that. Ook Gotik from Colombia. Santana from LA. And then lastly, very good name, Throb Zombie, love it, from Boston, Mass. So I'm excited. It's always a good season. I know you guys haven't really watched any of Dragula. It's brilliant. It's very creative. It's not about how much money the drag queens arrive with. It's about their creativity. It's really, really good. And hopefully I'm going to get more people to join the cult of Dragula with me. Yes. Yes. It sounds like what a lot of people started watching Drag Race for that has kind of become missing a little bit. Actually, a lot of 
memoirs that came out this month. So we are going to do a specific segment on that. First, we have Behind the Scenes, My Life in Randstones, which is a Dolly Parton memoir. It was released on October 17th, and it is a behind-the-scenes look at Dolly's distinctive style and features, quote, the largest reveal of her private costume archive. This book seems like a delight for Dolly stands and fashion buffs alike. I'm excited to see all of her wigs. Can I tell you, all of my students know, I used to just go on and on about how Jolene is the saddest song ever. It is so sad. And I would just be like, it's so sad. <laughs> They're like, can we get to the class, please? <laughs> get to the lesson, love. Yeah, yeah. Oh, oh that's it. so funny. So Worthy is Jada Pinkett Smith's memoir, which came out October 4th. As much as we all joke that she's a chronic oversharer with 12 seasons of the Red Table Talk, where she has basically divulged large portions of her life and her kids' life and her grandkids' life and her kids' kids' life and the gardener's life, and we, we know everybody now. Even the poor boy. Despite this, there's still lots of interesting revelations in this book, which I think the biggest one for me is the fact that they have been separated for the past seven years, her and Will Smith. Smith reveals a lot about her very public-facing marriage, her hidden feelings, and her really interesting relationship with Tupac. Everything I've ever learned about Jada Pinkett has been against my will. (laughs) She was just a movie star when I was growing up, like in my 20s and stuff, and she was always pretty good. They're Scientologists, and they keep that on the DL very effectively. They're just casual Scientologists. No such thing. Cannot be a casual Scientologist. I don't think that they would really be allowed to be Scientologists anymore because of their interview with Leah Remini. That probably was a public split. That's like enemy number one. You're not allowed to talk to her. Oh, no. Yeah. But they still try to act like they were never really Scientologists and like it was never really a part of their story. And that's just that's just not true. It's been fact checked by lots of people who were close to them. Lots of people who worked with them at their Scientology school. They had literally pictures of L. Ron Hubbard on the wall. Also, Will Smith was very close friends with Tom Cruise and Tom Cruise is a hardcore Scientologist. He would not just be buddy buddy with someone that isn't at least sympathetic to the cause. Tom Cruise is good duties with David Miscavige, the leader, the current leader. He's hardcore. I will say, though, in the rollout of this book, people have been kind of saying, like, oh, poor Will. Like, poor Will. Can she just stop divulging? You know what I mean? Kind of vilifying her in favor of him. And at the end of the day, I think that their relationship is a business. Mm. And they are very smart about knowing when to drop pieces of information to make the internet have a reaction to it. And so I think that they are both reaping the rewards from it. And you can have whatever feelings that you have about it, but I don't think that we should put Will in the place of like, oh, he's a victim. I think they're both equal parts. Absolutely. Perhaps the book, if people can be bothered to read it because they already have their preconceived sort of judgment of it, you know, maybe she's not the monster and maybe Will, they're they're both shitty people in my opinion. I agree. I don't think anyone without much wealth accumulated is like a good person if they haven't redistributed it at that point. It's Britney, bitch. People were waiting for this and it's called The Woman in Me. It was released on October 24th. I've already seen like a heap of reviews and we've got friends who have read it already. It's already on Amazon bestsellers list a week before it was released with the excerpts, which were drawing a lot of attention. And now it's huge. Fans were excited to see Britney's side of the story after years of censorship under her conservatorship. Despite bits that were going viral on social media, it doesn't seem to rewrite the Britney story that we all know. So there's nothing that's terribly shocking except perhaps some bits here and there. Like she had some shitty, shitty things happening. It was pretty much as we suspected. Sometimes even though you're thinking, oh, I think this is what happened and she confirms it, it's still like, holy shit, it was like that. Oh, my God, that poor woman, you know? Uh, Yeah. Yeah. What's your perception? 
I think it's important that she tells her story after so many years. For 13 years, she was basically censored under this conservatorship. So one thing we heard about the memoir is that she says that the way she interacted with her family and the relationships that she had with her family really did impact the way she moved through the music industry and how, for example, her relationships with her boyfriends went. Those power dynamics that came in her childhood through her teenage and adult life really did translate into other things that were happening in her life. And even though that isn't necessarily an earth-shattering revelation, it is nice to hear it from her because we haven't heard any of this stuff from Britney. Mm. It has always been from her family, from her producers. Sources close to Britney. Or Justin Timberlake in an interview. That's mm. never been her at her own will. Yeah. Yeah. So when Britney was a teenager in her teens, she was going out with Justin Timberlake. They were both teens. They were like, we're both abstinent. And we're virgins and we're saving ourselves for marriage. Uh, yep, they didn't. And she got pregnant and she had to have an abortion. Did she want to have an abortion? No, she didn't, did she? Speaking from experience, if you are not 100% sure that you want one, you are going to have trauma. No question about it. That really did affect how she went forward. And, you know, like the pressure on her, like who gives a shit if two teenagers are like late teens, give them education, give them birth control. It's just so terrible that people cared about that. Like, why was that such a big part of their brand to be these wholesome people that they weren't? And then Justin Timberlake getting asked later, like, oh, were you honest about that? And being like, <laughs> you know, and kind of throwing her through the mud a little bit so that he could release his singles, you know? It's like, screw you, man. Mm -hmm. So one more thing that I think definitely relates to the woman in me. So Justin Timberlake, with the return of NSYNC in that one Trolls movie. Oh, yeah. He definitely wanted to have a resurgence, Mr. Timberlake. But now I think the woman in me has killed that dead. No one is going to want it anymore from this guy. And there's sources saying that he feels like her memoir ruined it for him. And it's like, okay. <gasps> Cry Should... me a river. Cry me a river. Just turn the comments off, Justin. Turn the Instagram comments off like you have. Isn't it like this delayed sort of like, yeah, you didn't get your comeuppance before, but it's here. Now we need some justice for Janet Jackson. Welcome to your monthly predator list. We just like to remind our audience that these people are predators. Who's on the list this month? So first off, we have James Charles. It's important to remind everybody that he is a self-admitted predator. And it seems like based on the Cosmopolitan article that came out about him that he's doing the same behavior. So predator. Next person on the list, we have Colleen Ballinger, aka Miranda Sings on YouTube. I know that the whole situation kind of had a blow up, but no one seems to be talking about it anymore. And we just want to remind people that she is indeed a predator so that she is not able to make a comeback, which I think she's going to try to make within the next at least year. A new person to the predator list, Danny Elfman. Tell them more about Danny Elfman. I just saw an article this morning that a second woman has either come forward with a lawsuit or with allegations against Danny Elfman, which is really sad and really disgusting. And it goes to show that horrible people can be involved in the creation of things that we all like, and that doesn't make them any less horrible people. Speaking of a horrible person, they all are, but Danny Masterson, let's not forget, he's probably going to be still facing some more charges. Let's hope this actually has some effect on Scientology as well. Mm. Two birds, one stone. Let's do it. Let's go. And very last on the Predator list, we have Russell Brand. I may just be young, but the only thing I know about him is that he was married to Katy Perry. Oh. 
And I'm pretty sure he asked her to get a divorce over text. Yes. Right before she went on stage and it was filmed in her documentary. Oh my God. Yes. I. Oh, where's my memory gone? Yeah. So, um, yeah, Russell Brand, predator and asshole. Boo. And yeah, let's keep holding these predators accountable. Don't let them in your circles. Don't support predators. The topic of our main discussion this month is how money is tied implicitly to influence. We'd like to think that the formation of culture is an organic process, a collective gathering of ideas and art, but underneath that is the money. Our three stories today deal with how money has corrupted them. A YouTube creator so rich that she's lost touch with reality, she's weaponized her audience. Then we've got Drake who's holding grudges and catering to incels on his latest album, And lastly, a horror movie franchise milking every last dollar. So what do you think? Can we blame the money? So today in our main discussion, we are going to be talking about some YouTube. It's not drama. It's dangerous. There has been discord between SSS Sniper Wolf and Jack's Films. She's actually doxxed him after a long-running, like, rivalry. They were, you know, going at each other on Twitter and on YouTube and all of a sudden Sniper Wolf, bless her little money-grubbing little heart, she said she was filming close to where Jack's Films lives and she went... Last night, Sniper Wolf showed up outside of our home, recorded a video of our home, and then posted it to her 5.6 million Instagram followers goading me with the line let's talk like adults she's been temporarily demonetized by youtube temporarily she is an interesting character who definitely has benefited from pretty privilege she knows how to game the algorithm now val you said that you know jack's films pretty well he's one of the og youtubers that got really popular I had a big crush on him when I was younger. He was always just like a happy-go-lucky nice guy. And then he kind of just fell off my radar. I didn't realize he was still making content. They kind of had this rivalry because he felt like the content that she was making was not truly repurposing the content that she was reacting to. She was not providing a lot of apt commentary. She was not transforming it in a way. That was his gripe. His gripe doesn't necessarily matter too much in the grand scheme of things because no matter what gripe you have with someone, it is simply not okay to dox them. It is interesting that she just felt that they needed to talk like adults, but she was gonna do something so immature. It's very ironic. She also got angry because Jack said she doxxed me. She went on Instagram and said, I have no idea how to dox. (laughs) You posted a picture of somebody's house on your Instagram. That is doxing. And then she said on her Instagram, this creep has been harassing me for months. Ben plays victim, says I threatened him when I just wanted to talk to him. Have you heard of the DMs, girlfriend? There can't be zero ill intent behind showing millions of followers someone's house. Yep. Even just showing up to a rival's house unannounced without you knowing that they have your address, that is freaky. That is freaky and that is a threat in itself, I think. Absolutely. They know what they're doing when they put stuff out like that and that their following is going to attack the person. He actually made a separate account to make a point to critique her. Her username is SSS Sniper Wolf, and this account is called Jax Films. And he just does short reaction videos to her reaction videos. And he also gives credit to the people that she stole content from. So that's what she thinks constitutes harassment. She does steal content. Hello, Shane Dawson. She doesn't transform it. She just sort of sits there. One of her channels is a best of Sniper Wolf reaction. It's reloaded content. How do people do this? YouTube has demonetized temporarily. They do not have a good record for dealing with things like this, especially for certain creators. How long did it take them to get rid of Sneeko? 
they have a predator protector problem at YouTube. I think a lot of people think, oh, well, <laughs> she showed his house. And it's like, no, doxing is so unsafe. Does anybody remember Christina Grimmie? She's a YouTuber who had a super fan who came and shot her at a meet and greet. It's not okay. And it's not a little teehee joke. I think an important question to say is like, what does all of this situation have to say about YouTube? They, as we said before, have a protecting predators problem. So if you're not going to get punished for doxing someone, like what can you do on YouTube and not get punished? It's a valid question. It's not cool. And that shouldn't be a question that we have to ask. So Drake's new album came out and it is rife with misogynoir and also critics are calling it one of his weakest albums yet. Honestly, in our opinion, we think he just got lazy and is basking in his fame. This album has been the most repeated album that I've seen on the favorite songs of Tinder Boys. <laughs> so if that doesn't tell you anything about the audience that he's looking at, I don't know what does. Ew. And that begs a question. It's still popular, even though it sucks, both musically and message-wise. So will people really just consume anything by someone popular? Or do they just like the message of it? Because trans misogynoir and misogynoir and misogyny is just so prominent in our society that people hear it and they like it, even if the music sucks. There's some interesting lyric choices very misogynistic some of his older stuff had some of that but it was almost in more of like a tongue-in-cheek way it didn't feel so malicious and charged and this stuff just feels kind of charged you know what felt charged to me his shot at esperanza spalding for beating him for artist of the year like 14 years ago or some shit like that he is still salty 14 years yeah oh my goodness he thinks she's not doing anything? Honey, bumpskins of oats. She is one of the most monetizable people in the jazz industry right now. She is doing absolutely wonderful, Drake. No needs to take shots at Esperanza Spalding. Also, can we not forget that he has never apologized for saying that Meg Thee Stallion lied for getting shot in one of his songs? That is enough of a reason for me to never want to listen to a Drake song again. But for plenty of people, it almost seems like they don't care. And look, like people take shots at people in rap songs all the time. That's not something new. It's just old news. That Esperanza Spalding thing happened, what, 14 years ago? You're still salty? Why don't you think of something relevant? Another thing that critics said that Gus and I didn't understand until we heard some of the lyrics, people were kind of saying Drake sounds old and Drake shouldn't be talking about some of the themes that he's talking about. We're like, eh, I don't know about that. Because like you can be old and have casual sex. You can be old and go party at the club. Like we weren't sure exactly what they meant. We're not expecting Drake to write about 401ks and the pains of arthritis in your early 40s i'm not expecting that paying health insurance <laughs> but it's the tone in which he writes about subjects that he's already written about before and it just seems kind of angry and petty and it's like oh shouldn't you have moved on from that by now where is the growth he's saying that rihanna is bad at sex and stuff like that in his songs like how long ago did you date get over it you are grown drake you have enough money for a therapist I don't even think he technically dated Rihanna. I think he kind of just liked her and she friend zoned him and that was it. I don't even know if they really dated. Oh my god. So oh. just just very weird. And I just don't know why people are still giving this man any credit. Last 
Lastly, for our main discussion, we are going to be talking a little bit about franchises or already existing IP that is being repackaged into a new movie or a new TV show or a new bada bada bada. We're getting a lot of it this year especially, and in particular in October, we had three horror movies that came out that were based on some very popular franchises. Now, for the first time on the big screen, we saw Five Nights at Freddy's, which is a very popular video game adaptation. Oh. To call it a horror movie is laughable. Oh. We have the Exorcist reboot, which nobody needed an Exorcist reboot. Just the franchise rights for the Exorcist movies. $400 million. Oh my gosh. So clearly they thought it was a good idea. Audiences are not so thrilled with it. And lastly, we somehow have a 10th Saw movie. Mm. And this seems to be the one that people are the most excited about of the three that we just talked about. But again, all of them have issues. And I think all of them try to change some of the core ideas of the franchise and kind of turn them on their head in ways that are confusing to viewers. Those sorts of movies depend on archetypes. And if you've got an archetype that's like the hero and then, you know, two movies later, they're actually the villain. And it's like, oh, really? Like, that's so relevant to the Saw movie because I have seen five Saw movies. What I remember from them is that Jigsaw is indeed the bad guy. Yes. He is the antagonist. What I've heard about the 10th Saw movie is that they're trying to turn that around. They're trying to make him like an anti-hero, that kind of vibe. And I'm like, you've spent how many movies making this guy a piece of shit? And now you're going to say he's not after watching him mutilate all of those people? Now we have to believe that he's not a bad guy. Okay. They had sort of done that with one of them where he was dying or something. He couldn't get health care. And it was like a, it was a comment about the healthcare system in America and stuff like that. See, now I'm remembering the the movie where like, I'm pretty sure he like, he ends up killing like a bunch of people that like had to do with like screwing him over medically. Yeah, I think so. What the fuck? That's the, literally the plot of this movie. Oh, really? So they're just redoing it? Pretty much. Yeah. Oh, that's the plot of Satan. I I actually just FYI love the Saw franchise. Love it. I it's I think Saw One is probably the perfect slow burn horror movie. So yeah, like I care about the franchise. Good. I enjoyed what I've seen. For me, I don't think we need a tenth Saw movie. I think our generation deserves our own horror movies and we can just watch Saw 1 if we want to and the rest of the Saw films. That's how I feel. And that's, I think, why I'm pretty bummed about Five Nights at Freddy's. Again, I know we're putting it in like kind of the, the rebooted IP kind of category, but this is like the first time it's being on the big screen. So it's a different experience in that way. And a lot of people who aren't connected to the lore, who aren't connected to the game itself are are not happy with the film and I don't know if that's because like we are missing something like we are not connected to the lore in a way that they are or if they're just so excited about seeing Five Nights on Freddy's on screen that like they'll be happy with anything I'll be honest I think that's it I have a friend that really was into Five Nights at Freddy's when they were younger and then now they watched the movie they went dressed up as the animatronics like they are into it they really liked the movie now part of what they liked was that instead of showing like the gore and stuff like it felt like you were playing the game the type of like oh the person is walking in the background and the main character doesn't see it oh it's a it's a jump scare that you could see five miles away oh no like that stuff like it feels true to the game because that's what the game is like and so i guess if it feels like that that would make sense why they would do it but what i would think that they could do is the audience that really liked five nights at freddy's has grown up they can see what those kills looked like they can see what it looked like when those kids get stuffed into the animatronic suit or something like that at least if i was one of the five nights at freddy kids i would want to know what that looked like i would want to know what all of this stuff looks like behind the door that they just don't show us yeah it's almost like come on it's a missed opportunity i feel like with all of the money that they put into the gore for saw i feel like they could have put so 
so many cool kills into Five Nights at Freddy's that they just didn't have. But Saw and Five Nights at Freddy's weren't made by the same people. I'm just talking generally the film industry. Put money into other things. Yeah, we, okay. we, we get it, you know? I get that, I get that. Yeah, I get that. Yeah. Do you think that they suffered from trying to make it like PG-13? I think so. And I think, you know what? It was a very successful movie in the box office. So I think there is an audience for like tween and teen horror movies. But I think a lot of us who are interested in the concept and really wanted a scary movie are going to be a little bit bummed that it's not as scary as we wanted it to be. And I don't think that that's a bad thing either. Based on the trailer, I didn't think it was going to be a PG-13 movie. It looked like they were hiding some pretty gory stuff. If that's as scary as it's going to get, I don't even feel like I need to watch the movie at this point. And then lastly, with The Exorcist, I'll just tell you all that one of the reviews that I heard basically said that it was like a coexist sticker. (laughs) Everybody has their own kind of like an exorcism in their religion. And it's like, okay do a bunch of exorcist movies each one showing what an exorcism would look like in a different culture yeah but instead just two girls getting christian exercised it's not just a christian exorcism they're trying to do snake healing and they're trying to do a bunch of stuff at once is what i heard oh see like it would be cool to see it set in like a different country and just see that religion's approach to a demon possessing someone that would have been cool and it starts in haiti and i think it oh. starts with a good foundation for a movie I, I think maybe if they had stayed there they really yeah. could have played with that a little more based on all the reviews it was a flop so of the three that we're talking about right now this was the one that everybody was like no it was just bad it was simply trash can we see the exercise with exorcism I don't know. Is it a new gym? Exercise with exercise. Because it does look pretty physically intensive. Let's be honest there. Maybe like an 80s jazzercise exorcism. Ooh. Exercise with Paula Abdul. And it's like, woo. <laughs> and it's like she's floating and vomiting and shit. Oh my God. Doing the backward crawl. The backward crawl is a move. Yes. So now that we've kind of talked about these three movies, I think we can maybe learn some things from this as a culture, as a society. So I want to ask you both, where do you think that these franchise movies based on existing IP, where do you think that they go wrong? Making it when they don't have something new to add to the story. If you have something new and interesting to add to the story, then like, yeah, sure, make another movie because there's something that warrants a movie. But if it's simply popular and you want to make another movie so you're going to shove whatever you want into a film and shit it out in the box office, don't fucking do that either. If you don't know what to make, make something new. Don't repurpose something old. Not to say that reboots can't be good, but they have to add something to the story. It can't just be exactly the same or else there's no point. Related to that, what I was going to say is capitalism. Like that's the answer. It's just about making money and not caring about the integrity of the art. You know, like from the beginning of time, everybody steals. All the stories have all been written. Hamlet is the Lion King and so on and so on. But it's about money. That's what I'm trying to say. (laughs) are you just realizing are you just realizing bruh Bruh, hamlet is the lion king yeah that is so cool (laughs) okay let's keep going i think for me they don't know how to toe the line between giving the fans what they want and needing the fans to know so much before they go into it like i think with the exorcist movie they didn't give the fans anything that they wanted for the five nights at freddy's movie they almost appealed too much to the fans and nobody else really feels that connected to the story and so you have to know how to strike the balance because obviously you want the fans to be happy but also you want other people to be able to walk into your movie and watch it and be like yeah this was cool you shouldn't have to know three million easter eggs to be able to enjoy the movie 
The next question that I have is, these films did pretty well at the box office, all things considering. Five Nights at Freddy's, I think especially, did very well at the box office. As much as there is this franchise fatigue, these movies are doing well. So what do you think about the state of existing IP being repackaged into new things? Do you think that it still has a future in our society or do you think we're really kind of weaning down? What do you think, Gus? I mean, I think people are just getting tired of seeing the same thing over and over again. Eventually, people are going to stop watching and they're going to have to find something new because capitalism, just like Tish said. What about you, Tish? What do you think? I think children are a commodity in themselves. They don't have money, but they control money through their parents. So that's probably explains the Five Nights at Freddy's success, as well as teens. That age group is such a marketable audience because they don't have any expenses, really. And they can have part-time jobs, things like that. So they have a lot of spending power, which means a lot of entertainment is aimed at them. I think it'll still happen as long as it's making money. For some of these kids, a 10th Saw movie is their first Saw movie. And I think for other people, they're still going to show up at the theater. So even if they're not that excited about a 10th Saw movie, they might still be invested enough in the franchise to try again. But I think, like you said, Gus, I think those chances are going to start running out. And I think people are so hungry for new stories that we can't keep recycling the same five horror franchises over and over it can be art and it can be a commodity it can be both and we can tell new stories can we please do that the last question that i have for you all is why do you think that studios are so afraid of taking chances on some of these new stories and they would rather just throw another exorcism film at the wall like spaghetti i think it's because there's already fans so they already know that there's at least some audience that's gonna go see it if you think of something new if people don't like the trailer for example you're screwed oh yeah at least there's like an audience already there so they're like okay at least it won't do terribly the people who are in control the people who are in power in movie studios and entertainment are old white men and they are going to invest in things that are in their interest. They're not going to branch out and do new stuff with marginalized voices because they're like, oh no, I am the voice for the marginalized voice. And it's like, get fucked. I think they're just like, look, I know that we can spit out a few of these movies and we're probably going to make some money versus we do not have those kind of projections for new stories. And I think that's lazy. And I think it's time that the studios start taking some chances. I hope you enjoyed our Halloween episode. Thank you, Gus. Thank you, Tish. And thank you to everybody listening. I hope you had a good time. And we will see you next month for more goofs, gaffs, and pop culture bananery. Thanks for listening to the XYZ podcast. If you enjoyed the podcast, please leave us a review. We look forward to seeing you in November.